So let's read Joshua chapter 9. When all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard about what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and mouldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you and where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon king of Heshbron, and Og king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey, go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and mouldy it is. And these wine skins were filled, uh, we filled were new. But see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them and let, to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbours living near them. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, uh, Kiphrah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will, we will do to them. We'll let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leaders' promise to them was kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying, We live a long way from you, while actually you live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose, and that is what they are to this day. Uh, the other day I had a door-to-door -door, um, salesman come around and try to... Uh, convinced me to sign up to a car servicing program 
that really sounded too good to be true. I don't remember a whole lot of what he said because he spoke so fast, but what I do remember is that he shoved this um, big uh, flyer into my face and I looked at it and it had this big flashy writing saying, $1,000 worth of car servicing for free. And I thought, wow, that, that actually looks too good to be true. And uh, if something looks too good to be true, then it probably isn't true. Most likely there's a catch somewhere uh, in the program. And so um, as, as, in, as enticing as it looked, I did um, politely decline the offer and he quickly uh, raced off to the next house. Um, but this visit from the door-to-door -door salesman did actually remind me of um, this passage that we come tonight. Uh, Joshua 9, it's a chapter uh, that powerfully illustrates that appearances are not always as they seem. If something looks really good, it, it may actually not be. And uh, we learn in this chapter that the battles that we face as God's people are not just outward hostile battles, uh, but can actually be very subtle, deceptive battles. And so in this chapter, we are reminded that we need to live by faith, not by sight. That's the main point of this passage. We need to live by faith, not by sight. And so we'll look at it under three headings. We'll look at, uh, in the first section, we see the disaster of living by faith. Then in the middle section, we see the um, difficulty, sorry, the disaster of living by sight then the difficulty of living by faith, and the last section tells us about the triumph of um, God's grace. So the disaster of living by sight. Uh, that's, that's in the first section, verses 1 to 15, where the, um, we have all of these kings teaming up against Israel. And before that happens, though, we have the, the Gibeonites. Now, the Gibeonites, were, they're also called Hivites, and so if you look in the list of the um, kings who gather to attack Israel, the Gibeonites are among them. But at some point before any attack happens, the Gibeonites, they look around at all of these armies that have gathered and they think, do you know what? We can't beat Israel, even with this massive band of armies, because the Gibeonites have heard about the Israelites. And more than that, they've heard about the God of Israel. Uh, verse 3, it says that, uh, they heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, which was just a recent event. Down in verses 9 to 10, they, they talk about how they've heard about what the Lord had done uh, in the past, even uh, how he had brought his people out of Egypt and, and so on. And so it seems like the Gibeonites had been gathering all of this intel for a long time to weigh up their situation and they decide that it's not going to work, we can't defeat them um, by war and so they come up with this crafty plan uh, to to trap the Israelites uh, actually the Gibeonites they've really done their homework they, they really have worked out the situation because it seems that they even know um, that in Deuteronomy 20 that the Israelites were commanded to destroy everyone in the land including them uh, Deuteronomy 20 mentions the Hivites as uh, under God's judgment as well. And it seems like they, they know that, or they even say that at the end of the passage, uh, but they also seem to know that the nations that lived on the outskirts of the Promised Land, that in Deuteronomy 20, God told his people that they were able to make a treaty with them. You know, they could offer them terms of peace. 
And so the Gibeonites come up with this crafty plan, complete with um, costumes and props. And uh, so they put on their old clothes from the op shop and uh, they pack um, some mouldy bread and they turn up looking like the real deal. They look like they've come from miles away. Uh, they look all worn out and haggard. And um, not only do they look the real deal, but they are very smooth talkers. Uh, these guys would make great door-to-door -door salesmen um, because the way they talk about the Lord, you know, they use flattery, they use all the pious talk. Uh, they say all of the right things to lure the Israelites in into making this treaty with them. And at first you can see that the Israelites are actually suspicious because they say uh, that in verse 7, uh, and then Joshua, he actually does the right thing initially. He interrogates them. He says in verse 7, who are you and where do you come from? But then the Gibeonites give him that slippery spiel uh, and they, you know, they show him the mouldy bread and Joshua and all of the Israelites say, look at all that stuff and uh, they, they take the bait and they're reeled into uh, making a treaty with them. <clears throat> now, why, what's wrong with this situation? Why is it such a disaster for Israel to make this treaty uh, with the, the Hivites? And the answer is, um, from the perspective of Deuteronomy 20, making a treaty with these people, it actually had the potential to completely under, undermine what God was doing by giving his people the land in the first place. Because Deuteronomy 20 points out that in the conquest, the Israelites must destroy all of the people in the promised land. They were all under God's judgment. And the reason, if we have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 18, the reason the Israelites had to do that is because of this. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things that they're doing, uh, that they do in worshipping their gods, and you will sin against uh, the Lord your God. And so you can see here that the whole point of giving the people the promised land was God was setting up a holy nation in a holy place. There could be no idolatry, none at all. And yet here this treaty, what does it do? It opens the door for idolatry to come in. Okay, if they make peace with these, these uh, Gibeonites, then really it could, it could ruin everything. Uh, they could introduce idolatrous practices to the Israelites. And so really, with this treaty, the very identity of God's people is at stake. This is a big deal. This is, it has the potential to undermine everything. And that's how big of a deal this decision was. Now, on one level, you could hardly blame Joshua. You know, the Gibeonites were really good. They were very clever. Uh, you know, how, how were Joshua and the Israelites supposed to know that they lived, they were just some locals, uh, three days walk away. Uh, and Joshua, he did ask the right questions. You know, where do you come from? He wanted to know where they lived. Uh, and Joshua was operating in line with Deuteronomy 20 because he's not looking to make a treaty with, with any locals. And yet with these guys, he got tricked. And so surely it wasn't Joshua's fault, right? Surely it wasn't the Israelites' fault making this treaty. Well, no, that's not the perspective of the writer of this, this account. Um, the, the view of the writer is that Joshua is at fault. He made one very big blunder. And it's stated in verse 14. And verse 14 is probably the key verse in this passage. 
because if we look at verse 14, it says, The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. So this is where Joshua failed. Joshua leaned on his own understanding rather than taking it to the Lord. Uh, Joshua walked by sight rather than by faith. You know, he judged by appearances. Uh, Joshua used common sense rather than wisdom from above. And so to put it simply, Joshua left God out of the decision. See, what should have Joshua done? When it says they did not inquire of the Lord, what does that actually mean? What, what was Joshua supposed to do? And we know exactly what he was supposed to do because this reference to inquiring of God is straight out of Numbers um, chapter 27, verse 21. Uh, let's have a look at that one. Uh, this, this is actually, it's talking about Joshua. Um, it says of Joshua that he is uh, to stand before Eliza the priest who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. So that's what Joshua was supposed to do. Um, notice that reference to the Urim. The Urim and the Thummim is another word that's often put with that. Uh, what, what that was, it was some object in the, priest, the priest's outfit that would um, in some ways give the Israelites a simple yes or no answer from um, God. And so you see David uh, using it a lot in um, uh, 2 Samuel where, you know, should I go and attack these people? And they inquire of the Urim and Thummim and um, they get an answer, either yes or no. And we don't know how it worked. Um, we're never actually told how it worked, but this was a way of getting direct guidance from God. Now, we don't have this today. We don't have the Urim. We can't go to this, whatever it was, and, and say, you know, should I... Um, eat Cocoa Pops for breakfast or not. Um, you know, we can't do that today. Uh, we don't have the Urim because it belonged to that time in history. Uh, we have something better. <laughs> we have the completed, the full and final revelation of God in the scriptures. Um, but back then, this is what they had. And so Joshua had a way of inquiring of God with this decision before him. You know, he was a little bit suspicious, but he, he looked at the stuff and rushed into it. He could have done exactly what God had instructed him to do and inquired, and he would have got an answer. But instead of taking it to the Lord, he relied on his own judgment. And so this is the disaster of walking by sight, living by sight. And the question um, from this passage that we all need to ask, it should be pretty obvious, are we making the same mistake? Are we living by sight rather than by faith? Uh, are you someone who makes decisions day by day and yet verse 14 could be said about you, but so-and-so did not inquire of the Lord? Is that, does that describe you? Are you living by sight? Uh, you know, do you know what I find m most challenging about this incident uh, is the fact that Joshua was thinking clearly. Joshua was thinking biblically. He wasn't, he wasn't going to disobey Deuteronomy 20 and make a treaty with the locals. That wasn't his intention. So he's thinking biblically and yet he still failed because he didn't involve the Lord in the decision. He did it as if it was just up to him. 
as if he had all the answers. And I think that's something that we can all relate to. Uh, I'm sure many of us here tonight know the Bible well enough to, to have a decision before us and we can think of the principles in Scripture that apply to that decision. I'm pretty sure a lot of us can do that very well. And yet, we can still rush ahead, making decisions day by day, without ever involving the Lord, without ever stopping to pray. You know, James 1 talks about God ready to give wisdom to those who ask, and yet often we can make a decision, and then only after we've made it, we think, whoops, I should have, should have prayed first. Um, and so what's actually going on? Here, the, the issue is we can act independently of God. We can act as if we don't need God, that we're smart enough to make all of our own decisions uh, without involving him. And so many times we don't stop and pray. Uh, we don't wait on the Lord. You know, wait on the Lord, what does that mean? It means to, if something is unclear, that sometimes just waiting to see how God's providence will unfold, that's often the way we need to approach it. And so Joshua's blunder, it shows that you can have the right head knowledge. You can know the Bible even, and yet still fail by not turning to the Lord, by not taking the decision to him, by acting out of self-sufficiency, which is actually a, a form of pride. Um, one, one commentator put it like this. He says, we must be aware of that subtle unbelief that assumes I have this under control. And uh, the other thing we need to see here is we are just as susceptible to the Israelites or as the Israelites, to making this kind of blunder because, look, the Israelites had a very slippery enemy. They had someone who was deceitful, who was very clever at deceiving. And uh, we have a, an enemy like that. In fact, one far worse, uh, Satan himself, is the ultimate deceiver. You know, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14 where Paul says Satan masquerades as an angel of light. See, Satan is the ultimate door-to-door -door salesman who will, will trick you into thinking that something really bad is actually good. Now, Satan is the ultimate deceiver, enabling us to look at sin and to look at foolishness and actually go, that looks like a good thing to do. And so we are just as susceptible to making these kinds of foolish decisions as the Israelites. And how will it happen when we try to run our lives with the, the, the thinking that says, I don't need the Lord. I'm smart enough to deal with this on my own. I don't need to pray. I can, I can deal with it. I've got this. Every time we think, I've got this, that's the first step toward a foolish decision. One that actually, like the Israelites, can even compromise our identity as God's people. So the question from this is, are you living by sight? And uh, I should clarify that this isn't to say that every decision requires a um, prayer meeting first. Uh, you know, should I have Cocoa Pops or rice bubbles? <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, should I wear the red shirt or the blue shirt? It doesn't matter. But there are, there are many decisions, probably more than we realise, where if we stopped to pray, if we stop to prayerfully think through you know, what God has revealed in his word and think how does that connect 
do that prayerfully. Uh, prayerfully weighing the motives of our hearts. Prayerfully seeking that wisdom that God promises to those who ask. If we do all of that in more decisions than we normally do, that will make a big difference. It'll, it'll protect us from making uh, many foolish uh, and sinful choices. So that's the disaster of walking by sight. Uh, it's a disaster. Uh, but second, we see in this passage the difficulty of living by faith. The difficulty of living by faith, that's in verses 16 to 21. And you can see now that the Israelites are really struggling to deal with this um, mistake, uh, with the consequences of this foolish vow. They've now got to work out a way forward and um, it only takes three days for them to realise um, that they've made this mistake. You know, talk about wait on the Lord. Three days would have done it, <laughs> even if they didn't have the um, urine. Um, but anyway, three days later, they realise they've been tricked. And so they head off to Hivite territory to confront the Gibeonites. Uh, they want to sort it out. And as a result, there's real division, though, in the community. Real division. There's grumbling against the leaders um, there's division of how do, they, how do they move forward now that they've made this foolish vow. Um, do they keep the vow even though they've been tricked into making it? Even though it was a massive mistake, do they, do they have to keep the vow? Or are they justified in breaking it? And you can see at the, verse, at the end of verse 18, uh, if we go to the next slide, um, see the whole assembly are grumbling against the Israelites in fact, the whole assembly, they want to attack the Gibeonites. You know, it seems as though the community, they think, we don't have to honour this vow. We were tricked into making it. You know, we don't have to honour a vow that was a mistake. We can just throw it out and, and um, attack them. And yet the leaders, the ones who foolishly made the decision, they seem to think that breaking the vow would be, actually be worse than making it in the first place. So who's right? You know, can you throw out a vow if it was a mistake? Or do you have to honour it, even though it was a mistake? Which one's right? Uh, which ones are living by faith? That's the question. And the answer is, um, well, verse 19, I think, sums it up. Because the leaders, they say um, to the people, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. See, the leaders, they, they put it in terms of, no, no, we made this oath in God's name. And for us to break this vow would actually bring God's wrath on us. And so the leaders are correct. They are the ones who are walking by faith in this situation. Uh, you know, to, to break a vow would be to bring dishonour on the name of the one <clears throat> in whom they made the vow, uh, the Lord. And remember what the point of the book of Joshua is about. God keeps all of his promises. And so if his people are called to reflect his character, which is the whole point of the promised land and you know, having a holy nation within this holy land, if his people are to reflect his character and he's the God who keeps all of his promises then what does it say if his people are flippant with the truth or, you know, they make a promise and, ah, we're not keeping that, chuck that out. What does that say about the Lord himself? Uh, if his people are to reflect his character, then 
that means we are to do what? Keep our oath even when it hurts. That's in Psalm 15. Keeps his oath even when it hurts. And that is actually a principle you see right through Scripture. That if we name the name of the Lord, uh, that we are to be people of integrity, people who keep our word, people who keep our promises. And the leaders do that here. You know, they, they did leave God out of the original decision. They were walking by sight back then, but now they're not. Now they're actually doing the right thing. They're walking by faith. And even though this will make life harder in the promised land, even though it's inconvenient, uh, they, they honour their word and do the right thing. Uh, they find a way to go forward in obedience to God. And in this case, they make the Gibeonites um, woodcutters and water carriers. So a less than ideal situation. Do you see the result of their vow means that they're now more, um, they're going to have to be even more vigilant against idolatry. Okay, they've made it harder for themselves. And it would have been very easy just to say, let's, um, let's get rid of the Gibeonites and that'll make it easier for us. But that would be to add sin to folly. And they don't do that. And so they're living by faith even though it's a difficult thing to do, even when they've got the whole community grumbling against them, they still do the right thing. And I, I think, again, we can relate to this situation where sometimes we find ourselves in circumstances where it would be a lot more convenient to ignore um, what God has said and do our own thing. And, uh, you know, if we're talking about um, being people of integrity, people who, uh, you know, our word is our bond, People who do like Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. You know, we live in a culture where that is not valued. We live in a culture where um, convenience can, can uh, trump integrity. Uh, we live in a culture where promises are always subject to a better offer. And so it's very easy to just go along with that um, when, when, we face, well, when we find ourselves in a jam and yet, God's people, if we're going to reflect the God who keeps his promises, then we are to be people who do that. We are to be people of integrity. And, and you know, all of our words and all of our actions, they're not independent of God. Okay? If we name his name, then everything we do, we're representing him. And so, how are we doing that? Are we taking the name of the Lord in vain by representing him in the wrong way? You know, a simple broken promise might get us out of a jam, but it says a whole lot about the God we claim to follow. And so we need to be people who live by faith, not by sight. Uh, people of integrity. And where do we get the strength to do that? Where do you get the strength to do that when you are really tempted to, to break a promise? Uh, we get it by looking to the Lord who keeps his promises. And for us, we look to the cross because in the cross, we actually see that Jesus kept his promise to save us even when it hurt. You know, he could have easily got out of the cross. He could have said, this is too hard. It's not my fault. You know, it wasn't because of his sin and folly that got him into that situation. It was our sin and folly. And yet Jesus walked by faith. He went through it, kept his promise even when it hurt, and he saved us. Uh, and so if he can do that for us, then that's where we will find the strength to be the men and women of integrity 
that he's called us to be, that we would reflect him uh, in the way that would bring honour to his name. And, uh, you know, in some ways this just pushes us back to the first point, that we need in everything, you know, not to get ourselves in those situations where we will be compromised. Uh, we always need to be seeking wisdom from the Lord. So there you go. That, that's the difficulty of living by faith. It is difficult, um, but it's what we're called to do. The third thing we see in this passage, though, is the triumph of God's grace. Okay, there's a triumph of God's grace here. Uh, remember I mentioned earlier that Joshua's failure with the Gibeonites, it actually had the potential to completely undermine their, their identity. You know, it was going to put them into um, a situation where they might be having to struggle with idolatry. So it looks like a disaster. And yet you get to the end of this passage, uh, verses 22 to 27. And here we have this subtle hint that maybe God is doing something behind the scenes that will actually undo the deception of the Gibeonites and undo even the foolishness of his own people. Uh, God, it looks like God is doing something good in this situation. Um, because in these verses, you notice a real tension. There's a tension that um, I notice commentators um, spend a lot of time trying to unravel. Uh, it's as far as the Gibeonites are concerned. Because on the one hand, the Gibeonites are cursed. You know, they, they receive a penalty for their deceitfulness. And you see that in verse 23, where Joshua says to the Gibeonites, you are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And so the Gibeonites now have to live with the consequences of their, their sin uh, forever, never released. And then in this very mysterious way, it actually seems like the Gibeonites are receiving grace despite their sin. Because have a look at the way this passage ends. Look at verse 26 and 27. It says, So Joshua saved the Gibeonites from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose and that is what they are to this day. Now, you can't help wondering what this situation will lead to for the Gibeonites. Because here they are supplying the needs for the place of worship. And, uh, you know, they're the ones supplying the wood for the altar. And what happens at the altar? That's, this is for the sacrifices to be made. And so this is a very unique situation where... Every day, these Gibeonites, as they cut the wood, what are you doing that for? Oh, that's so we can make these, these lights can make these sacrifices. And so what are they seeing in that? They're seeing a picture of the gospel every day. They're, they're seeing in this, you know, supplying wood for the altar. This, this, what does the altar say? It says that the God of Israel is so holy that he must punish sin. That's what the altar says. But it also says that the God of Israel is so merciful that he has provided a way in which he can punish our sin without punishing us. He's provided a sacrifice, and the sacrifice is the way for our sin to be forgiven so that we can be brought into fellowship with this holy God. And so the house of God, everything that happened there, the altar, it was all pointing not only the Israelites, but even the Gibeonites now to the Lord Jesus. Who sacrifice 
takes away our sin. And so, you know, these Gibeonites, they're hanging around the house of God and they probably would rather not have to do that. Um, But that's where they are. And, you know, it makes you think of Psalm 84, verse 10. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tent of the wicked. (laughs) And so in some ways, oh, that's that's not the one. (laughs) In some ways, the Gibeonites, they're like Rahab and um, her family. Remember Rahab from chapter 2? Out of all of the Canaanites, all of these people who were under God's judgment, not only was Rahab and her family spared of the judgment, but they were invited in to live among God's people. And now we see the Gibeonites. It's almost like the same thing has happened. Not only are they spared from judgment, but they're invited in. They can live among God's people. Uh, Here's some outsiders brought in. And they're brought in really to the very heart of what, what the whole of Israel is about. The God of Israel. Worshipping the Lord. The temple, the sacrifices, they're right there in the middle. <clears throat> and if you actually, <clears throat> uh, if you follow the storyline of the Bible and look at all the reference to the Gibeonites, <clears throat> sorry, they, they, do, they do come up from time to time. And... Um, you know, there's a bit of a debacle with um, Saul, how he treats them, and then David has to sort that out. But if you keep following the storyline of the Bible, the, the last time they're mentioned is actually in the book of Nehemiah. And that tells us that the Gibeonites returned from exile with the Israelites and helped them build the walls of Jerusalem after exile. And so it would actually seem that rather than becoming a stumbling block to Israel, the Gibeonites ended up being a blessing to Israel and they themselves were blessed. And so this this chapter, it ends with this amazing triumph of God's grace over sin. You know, despite the deception of the Gibeonites, he gives them grace. Despite the foolishness of his people, he gives them grace. See, God not only continues with his people, uh, but... He brings good out of the failure. You know, it's a good result. And doesn't that fill you with hope? As you think about your own mistakes and foolish choices and the things that have happened in your life that you you think to yourself, you know, if only I had taken it to the Lord in prayer, I wouldn't have ended up in this situation. And yet what does God do? He gives grace. And his grace is so great that he can even bring good out of failure. That's what we see here. I mean, this reminds us of um, uh, Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See? All things. Does all things include our mistakes? Does all things include the dumb decisions that we've made, that have made things tricky? And the answer has to be yes. Now, we do need to be careful there. That's not saying that, our, that there's an excuse for sin. God never gives us an, a reason to excuse our sin. Never, ever. But what we do know is that God is not paralysed by it and that he, can, he keeps his promise in all things. He's working for his glory and for our good. And that actually even can include our mistakes. It does. In a mysterious way, this is God's grace. 
And so even if you have made foolish choices in the past, and even if you are living with the consequences of those foolish choices now, God can work grace in your life so that he can even do good in that. Okay? He can bring you out of that. You can actually leave that behind and seek after him, follow after him. And so we see in this passage that living by faith and not by sight, number one, it includes seeking the Lord for wisdom in every decision that we face. That's how you live by faith. It means sticking to integrity, even when that's difficult. That's how you live by faith. And it also means believing that God is working all things for his glory and for our good, so that even our past mistakes don't undo that promise. Okay? We walk by faith, not by sight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the wonderful God that you are. You are such a, a mighty and powerful God and you are the God of all wisdom and that you can turn even failure, you can bring good out of that for your glory and for the good of your people. We praise you for this, Father. We praise you that uh, even our past mistakes don't have to be uh, like chains that bind us forever. Uh, but we thank you for your grace, Lord, that we can uh, press on, that we can leave the past behind and, and press forward living by faith, trusting in you and walking in obedience. Oh Lord, help us to do that. Help us to remember that we have a saviour who, who didn't uh, throw off his duty when it got hard, but that he kept his face set like flint to go to the cross on our behalf. And we thank you that all of our sin, all of our, our failures, uh, that he has dealt with them once and for all and has set us free. And so, Lord, help us to live in the freedom of walking by faith, not by sight. And we ask it in Jesus' name.